Well, have you had a good week? Good. A few of you did. I am glad. You know, <laughs> you did. And uh, sometimes it has, it has a lot to do with our outlook on that, uh, you know, whether it's a good week or not. And uh, has a lot to do with our uplook, too, and whether we're really looking to him. Amen. Uh, doesn't that look not nice this morning? It's got real colors this morning on that. Actually, pick, can pick up a red sometimes right now. Uh, we had just, uh, as we stay down south, we had slap worn out the projector for this screen back here. It had been used year after year after year. And uh, it, it went down, actually, about three weeks ago. And, uh, and uh, so we had to, uh, we actually had the opportunity to use one, borrow one, for about three weeks from some folks around here, from a company around here, to thank the Lord for connections. Jason, thank you for your connections you have with people. And so we just went and we didn't have to deal with that until we finally had to order. We was going to be very frugal with this and order bulbs to replace it and do a few more, you know, years with it and everything. But as with a lot of things, they discontinued that. There's no longer a bulb to be found in the world to go to that projector that was here. So this one should last us a long time. Even, uh, even whatever group meets in here, once we have a new sanctuary out front, we'll, uh, uh, that, that'll still be used great. And uh, thank the Lord for the... Thank the Lord for the good use we had of all the other ones. It's just, you know, it's just like one of those things that's hard to just say, Grand, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, when you say, now that little box right up there, that, I realize it means a lot, and so that little box is over $11,000 there, and it's just, just like, you know, dear Lord, but, uh, you know, do some shopping around. That's what you're going to find. It's just either pay a few thousand for bubs, which are non-existent, by the way, or uh, take a step here that, when you spread that out over a number of years, it's really not much for an investment. It's a tool. It's how we look at everything around here that's, that, that's purchased for this ministry. It is a tool. It's a weapon against the enemy, and it's a tool to be used for the glory of God. And he's always supplied our needs, even when they were, some unexpected needs came up around that. So thank the Lord for that. And for the guys that helped take down the old one and put up the new one, they're grateful for that. Well... We're in our series on unshakable, and last week, week we looked at the fact that we have an unshakable God, unshakable God is, and today we're beginning on, to look at or to focus on unshakable faith, unshakable faith. Now, we're going to be looking over the next two or three weeks, we're going to be looking at some biblical examples of unshakable faith and see what they can teach us about our faith walk today. So we're getting started with that today, and, and this is an important word. I think for the day in which we live, unshakable is an important word. Unshakable means it, it, that, that you, it cannot be moved. It is built on a firm foundation. It's firm conviction. It's steadfast resolve. It's unshakable. Now, this is... Part two of the message that Leanne started a while ago. She's gone with a group right now, but she didn't know that at the time. But she actually kind of crowded into my territory just a little bit here. But she, she most of the time does a better job than I do, so that's all right. But we are living in a day when everything that can be shaken is being shaken, will be shaken. Until that which is unshakable will be only that which remains. That which is a kingdom the kingdom of God, that which is in God's purpose and design for us. And the final shaking will go on just as we come to the conclusion of this age. Now, uh, 
we see this going on around us, that the very foundation fabric of marriage, of family and home is being shaken today. We're seeing it uh, in our moral standards today, in morality. We are seeing it in our own government, our nation. And we're even seeing a lot of shaking going on in the church today. Not all shaking is a bad thing. Some of it's necessary if it produces what God wants to bring out of a situation. But God wants us to, to learn to develop in our lives an unshakable faith. People's faith can sometimes be shaken, right? I mean, your faith in other people, can it be shaken? You have someone that you believe in that gives, you know, shares, you know, with you. They promise you something and then unfortunately they let you down and they don't follow through. And that can happen so often where I've seen some people say, you know, I just don't have faith in anyone anymore. How sad is that? People, people's faith being, in God is being shaken today. Well, all the attacks that are, that are they're happening, the public attacks now that are happening on Christianity, the challenge of the, the, the reality and the truth and the infallibility of the Scripture, the challenge on the person of Christ and who He is, the challenge on Christianity as being the way, the truth, the life, the challenge on our lifestyle as believers and living a Christ-like life. From all directions today in our nation, we're seeing that kind of actually frontal attack now on the kingdom of God and on the church. Now, a lot of that we see in the, uh, in the ideologies the, the, that we see in our culture today. And one of them is secularism. And you'll see how this has shaken the very foundation of the principles of God's word in people's lives today. Secularism basically is where just God's excluded from everything, from public places, government, schools, so on and so forth. He just no longer belongs there. God's been excommunicated. The, the, sex, the second ideology is what we refer to as humanism. And that's basically where man replaces God. It's all about me, what I can do. You're okay, I'm okay. Man will... Man has within himself everything that he needs. Then there is the ideology of pluralism, which basically says that all paths lead to the same end, that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Then there's the ideology of consumerism, which I think really has taken a great deal of control over this nation, whereas it's all about material things, about making more money, about buying more things, and... It takes priority over spiritual things. takes priority over God. It's shaking. We're seeing an ideology that's attacking this country. We're more concerned about things than we are about God. Hedonism is also an ideology which we can see, also see this uh, going on in the world today. And that's basically where uh, it's, it's a pursuit of pleasure. Your life is all about a pursuit of your own pleasure. Folks, we are designed, God designed us. To live by faith. He designed us that way. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that we are to live by or walk by faith and not by sight. Now we know that there's a natural faith. That you most of you had a, a certain amount of faith that when you woke up this morning that the 
that there would be another day that you would have the strength to get out of bed, that when you got dressed and got ready to come here to worship, that when you put the key in the ignition uh, or push the button or whatever you have to do, start yours in this day and time, um, that, that, it, that, your, that your automobile, that your vehicle would start. You, you believed it would. You, now, some of us have been disappointed at times when it didn't happen, but, but you just had faith that would happen. You had faith when you came into the building here and you saw the chairs here. You had faith that when you sat down, uh, it would be able to handle the load there and it would be there for you. you had, there's just general faith every day. If I just believe the sun's coming up, I believe if I flip the switch, the light comes on. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's a good thing, but it's mainly based upon the premise of previous experiences that you've, this always happened, so you still believe it happens. Then there is that supernatural faith. And the supernatural faith goes beyond just the daily uh, general faith. And that's when we learn to depend upon and see God move in our, in our lives to believe what he says in his word and to, to act on it. So I, I think before I move into an example of unshakable faith, and we take just a couple of minutes to look at that, I, I want to go back and, and establish, a, uh, I think, establish a foundation for us in understanding of faith. We've talked a lot about faith around here, and there are some there are some extremes in teaching about this. There's some misrepresentation of that. But as I mentioned before, the scripture says quite clearly that the just shall live by faith. That we're called to live or walk by faith and not by sight. So it must be important. It is very important, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, you remember this? That without faith, it is impossible to please God. Would you say that faith is important? If we want to please God, then faith is necessary. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This faith not only is faith in him, that he exists, that he's there, he's here for us, but that his will is to bring blessing and help into our lives if we will diligently seek him. So let me point out these, these simple statements about faith. First of all, I think it's important for us to see faith and that faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. Every, the scripture says that every good and perfect gift comes from who? Comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variableness or turning. In other words, he's reliable, he's constant, he doesn't change his mind back and forth. You can rely on him. But every good and perfect gift comes down from him. And so we know that faith is a good thing and that, that faith is actually a gift. And by that I mean that every person has been given the potential to believe. The potential and ability that once they've heard, they can believe or not believe. Every person has been given the potential. You and I could not believe unless God had, had given us this grace gift that allows us the potential to believe. So faith is a gift. Ephesians 2.8 tells us, as far as our salvation, that for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast about it. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, the Bible says to every person is given the measure of faith. To every person is given a measure of faith. 
how does faith come? We say, well, faith, faith can come by hearing someone's testimony. Well, it can encourage you, and it may bolster your faith in some ways. You witness a miracle. I've been looking at some of the documented examples of miracles taking place in revivals around the world today, and it absolutely will blow your mind. And you think, man, if I was in that climate, if I was in a service there where that happened, where I could legitimately see these supernatural miracles happen, man, that would build my faith. That would help me. And, you know, it probably would. But that's not, that, that's not the method that the Scripture gives for us to receive faith and increase faith in our lives. The Bible tells us how we do that in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing the Word. It's the Word of God. Hearing the Word, getting inside of us, that strengthens our faith. We have to know what we believe before we can receive. We have to be confident that this is a promise from God before we can receive that promise from God by faith. I thank God he moves in his mercy at times and does things that is just simply an act of mercy and sovereignty and thank the Lord for that. But he works through the avenue, through, the, the, through his word. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, you can be strengthened and helped by reading the word, by meditating on it. That's extremely important. But it doesn't say faith comes by reading the word. It doesn't say faith comes by meditating on the word. It says faith comes by hearing the word. There's something about hearing it with our physical ears and hearing it with our, our spiritual heart. Hearing it, planting it inside of us. That's why it's so important for us to invest time in his word and get a hold of what it says toward us. Next, it's important for us to see that faith, and this is a very familiar passage, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is the substance. Now, the Amplified Bible says faith is the assured title deed, the assurance and title deed of things hoped for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen by physical senses. This is an amazing passage of Scripture where it says this is how, this is how faith is demonstrated. This is how you understand faith, that faith is Faith is the assurance. No doubt, it's assurance. It's reliable. It's the title deed. You know, we've mentioned before that you can, you can have a piece of property that you've never seen with your physical eyes, but if you have a title deed to it, it belongs to you whether you see it or not. Faith is that title deed and what God has promised belongs to you whether you have received it, whether you are walking in it or not. That's, a, that's an amazing verse. He wants us to learn not only to receive it, but to believe for its manifestation so that you can go look or experience that piece of property that he's promised you. That make any faith? Does that make any sense to you guys? Faith is a substance, the assurance, a totality of things hoped for that's guaranteed to us. It's the evidence of things not seen. We can't see with our physical eyes. Just because you can't see Jesus in your difficult circumstances doesn't mean he's not there. And just because you're not hearing him doesn't mean he's not speaking. I know it's double negatives, but it still is true. 
Then we need to see that faith must be exercised. Just like the physical body. Just like it must be exercised. If you don't use it, you lose it. It must be developed. We'll touch on this a little bit more maybe in the next week or two about the different levels of faith. You start out with faith, saving faith, the grace of God working in your life, and then it's, then it's up to you, it's up to me to live out our lives in a way, getting the word inside of us, walking faithfully, fellowshipping with him, spending time in prayer, all these things as we grow in our Christian life, as we call it discipleship, as we grow and develop as a believer, then we're flexing those faith muscles. Sometimes it takes a little battle to help you flex that muscle to see where you are. Sometimes it takes some difficult circumstances uh, that, that if you use it right, it doesn't have to defeat you. It can actually strengthen your faith. It doesn't need to shake you. So it's important for us to see here that faith must be exercised. Faith without works or corresponding action is dead, worthless, useless, in vain, the scripture says in James chapter 2, verse 17. So faith must be used or exercised. And the more you use it and exercise it, the more you grow and develop in it. Sometimes people want to step over and exercise their faith in something that's huge, some huge miracle or, or promise or something. And there's times that it works. It's good by the grace of God. But most of the time, if we're going to be prepared for something that's big, something that maybe or it seems to be insurmountable to us, we need to have established our faith on this other level, in the smaller things, in the daily things. And that's extremely important to do that, to develop our faith and to know that faith is just complete trust and confidence in Him. And understand this, that faith is the vehicle through which we receive from God. It doesn't mention in the scripture, it mentions that Jesus had compassion on people and he healed them. And we see the compassion, the mercy, and the grace at work through the ministry of Jesus. We see it throughout the scripture, the mercy of God. But God has chosen the vehicle or the method of faith to be the channel through which he would work in the lives of his children, of believers like you and me. We don't receive because he feels sorry for us. We don't receive because we beg for it. We don't receive because we've cried for it. We don't, we don't, the Bible says nothing about that. I'm not saying God doesn't have compassion and want to give and everything, but the scripture is quite clear that Jesus said, be it unto you according to your faith. It wasn't. That he, it wasn't just about having compassion and feeling sorry for the blind or the woman with the issue of blood or the lame or whatever. It was the fact that these people stepped up and they took action. They took a step of faith, touched the hem of his garment. Other people were touching him, but there's one that drew upon him because of her faith. Faith was the contact point. Faith is what brought it alive. Faith is what brought healing. Yes, it came from him. Understand that, but faith is the connection. And he's given every one of us the measure of faith. He's given us the, the ability to believe. He's given us the opportunity to grow and develop that. But the choice is yours and the choice is mine. What we will we do when it comes to living out the faith of life? Today we are looking at unshakable faith. I want you to look at one interesting example back in the Old Testament. Most all of you will be familiar with this, but we're going to visit for just, just a few minutes here. 
And, and I think point out um, three important things for us to see in keys to developing an unshakable faith. Now, we'll go all the way back to the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Now, Daniel is a very interesting book in the Old Testament. There's a lot of prophetic uh, information in there and some, some very unusual things in there. But we're going to look at, at an amazing account that took place in some lives of three young men. And uh, in Daniel chapter 3, now, let's kind of set this up, that King Nebuchadnezzar was the king over Babylon, a ruthless and powerful king. And he decided that um, he was going to build a, a gold statue, 90 feet high, 9 feet thick. That may have only been gold-plated, but nevertheless, it was impressive. He set it up. And he ordered all the important leaders, the governors, the magistrates. He invited them to come to the place where he had set up the idol, the gold statue. And a proclamation was made that day. That when you heard the sound of the trumpets and the instruments, that people were to fall on their knees and worship the gold statue that the king had set up. And it was declared that anyone who failed to do that would be thrown immediately into a roaring, fiery furnace. And so, as you can imagine, when the trumpet sounded and all the musical instruments was heard, at the sound of the trumpets and instruments, every race, color, and creed fell to their knees and worshipped the gold statue. Except except three young men. Now, these three young men had been taken captive uh, from Judah. They'd been taken captive when there was a siege against Jerusalem and Babylon overran the city. Three captives, uh, there's many captives taken, but it mentions these three young men who were taken captive to, into Babylon. Uh, they were taken along at the same time with Daniel. Now, understand, sometimes People can whine and think they have it very difficult. And when they look at maybe I, I have the pressure of people I work with and you don't understand the way it is being in school and having all the temptations that are there and the peer pressure that's there. And sometimes I feel all alone and, and I feel like uh, people are against me because I'm a Christian. And it's easy sometimes to become a whiner, a whiner instead of a winner, a whiner. Oh, it's just so hard being a Christian. And we get this persecution complex. Now that, and, it, and it happens. And so it causes many people not to take a stand at all. They kind of be closet Christians, if you will. But what happened to these three men? They had been taken captive from their own home and family. They were taken into a strange place, separated from everything that they had known. They were subjected to a foreign land to its customs, and to its gods. Three young men, alone in a foreign country, in a different world, surrounded by pagans, and in a completely different culture. Now, why were they chosen? What's interesting, when they selected when they selected captives to perhaps serve in leadership or serve in the king's palace, they were, they were, uh, they were selected with high, they had to have high qualifications. 
Uh, they were to be, for instance, these three men, they were to be without physical defect. They were to be strong and healthy. They were to be handsome, which is interesting when you research this. They should be good looking. Intelligent, wise, well-informed, teachable. These were the kind of young men they were looking to serve in the king's palace. Now, when they were first taken, now get this, when they were first taken captive, they were probably about 12 or 13 years old. And then there, it was taken two or three, four years to actually train and get them ready to serve in the palace of the king or to take leadership responsibilities. Their name was changed. Their, they, uh, their name was changed from the Hebrew names, which actually was Hananiah, uh, Mishael, or Michael, and Azariah. And their names ended with I-A-H or E-L, and that had reference to the God of Israel. So actually their names represented that they were servants or they were followers of the true God of Israel. But when they arrived in Babylon, they were given the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these names spoke of the strange gods and culture of their day. Their name was taken, their whole identity was taken from them. So three young men who weren't even from Babylon were appointed to be over many of the affairs of, the, of Babylon itself. Amazing. Taken from a foreign land who served different gods, and yet they came to a place of influence and leadership. Now, pick up with me in verse 12, if you will, as we look into this account a little bit further. Verse 12, chapter 3. Now, all the people had bowed, remember, except these three. And uh, there were those who... Uh, there were those who knew that, and this was some of the people that encouraged the king anyway in this. Uh, there were some that were very jealous of these young men who pointed out, hey, by the way, these three young men did not do this. They didn't bow to the statue. So they, we begin in verse 12, says, but there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. Now, they were probably about 17, 18 years old, 19 at this time. And they pay no attention to you, O king. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you've set up. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar flew into rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. And he asked him, he says, is this true? And he says, I'll give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made. That would have been tempting, knowing what was going to happen? Say, oh, all right. But they didn't, they didn't succumb, they didn't give in. But if you refuse to do this, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what will your God be able, what God will be able to rescue you? What God will be able to rescue from you from my power? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied. This is their answer. O king, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace... The God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Of course, the king was furious. What did he do? He ordered that the furnace of fire be heated seven times hotter than it normally was in the execution of people. And... He ordered that the strongest men of the army would bind these three young men, tie them up, and they were, they were 
They took them toward the burning fire, the furnace there. They tied them up, threw them into the furnace, fully dressed. Three young men were fully dressed, thrown in the furnace. And because the fire was so hot, the flames killed these soldiers as they threw them in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell over into the roaring flames. Verse 24. But suddenly, the king jumped up. He must have been at some distance. He couldn't have been sitting very close. But after a while, from a distance, from a distance, the king jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, O king, we certainly did. Look, he shouted, I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like the Son of God, or as a Son of God. The king came as close as he could to the furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. So he recognized who God really was, that their God was real. He says, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Now, I know, this is, I know this is a vacation Bible school story, understand? And I know we're brought up and taught this. And it's an amazing account of our little boys and girls learning about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego if they can pronounce those names. And we read through it. Do you, can you get a grasp? This, this, this really happened Okay, at least we believe it really happened. We believe the Bible's true. A lot of people don't. A lot of people believe part of it, but some parts like this. This actually happened. I have a tendency when I read about these things, as I mentioned before, to kind of inject myself into the picture there. In this, I didn't, I was not tempted to inject myself into the the role of Meshach and you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. You know, I wasn't thinking about the fiery furnace at this particular time, but I was thinking about being there when the king called them to step out and they came out of that furnace. I was thinking about being one of the crowds standing around at that time. How amazing that must have been. How could you not believe? And, and yet... We don't follow him because of signs and wonders and miracles. His, his word is true. But this was an amazing. It says, it says, they stepped out of the fire, and here's what happened. The other officials, governors, advisors crowded around them. And the word's pretty meticulous here. I've, I'm in New Living Translation, but, but it's pretty meticulous here in describing these young men when they came out of the fire. They came, and they saw that the fire had not touched them. Now, just getting close to it, it killed strong soldiers. The fire had not touched them. Not one hair was singed. That's amazing. Any of you ever lie to grill sometimes to just in your face? You know what, you know what happens. It doesn't take very much to singe. But it says... Not one hair was singed. Their clothing was not scorched. And I really love this part. And they didn't even smell like smoke. That is amazing. I can walk into a service station or convenience store and walk out and I smell like smoke. 
Sometimes I've felt a little, little self-conscious when I've done that and gone into a heavy smoking area and I've walked back out and I know that I smell like I've been, you know, a smokestack. And I'm coming out of there and I realize, you know, I'm about to go to someone, you know, as pastor and as, uh, you know, go see someone in the hospital or something. And I'm going to walk this place smelling like smoke. So there have been times I've come, come out of those places, Lord, I need to claim somewhat of this miracle. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he said, they came out, didn't smell like smoke. So what about me? This is an amazing, amazing story. So what was Nebuchadnezzar's response? Well, you can imagine. He said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, I believe. He sent his angel to rescue his servant who trusted him, who had faith, unshakable faith in him. And here's what the king decided to do. He made a decree, and he says, now anyone that speaks out against their God Anyone speaks out against God that, that they, would, they would be destroyed. No one, no one. He says, there is no other God who can rescue like this God. So here's what they did. They made a public standard declaration. This is important. If you're going, if in life, you're going to be challenged by some things. And you're going to be challenged by some people. And you're going to have some temptations that come against you. You're going to have situations that, are, that can be very trying and testing. And people that will uh, not agree with you, people who will oppose you, you're going to run into situations like that. And one of the best things you can do as a believer, not as a pride-filled, uh, not as a pride-filled Christian that's uh, you know, somehow bragging about yourself or your own ability or being better than anyone else, but one of the best things you can do is once you've anchored in the truth of the word, determined you're going to anchor right there, and then, not in a bragging sort of way, take a public stand so people know where you stand on it. You make up your mind. In fact, it's good to make up your mind what your stand is going to be before you face that trial or temptation. That if I have to face this, this is what I believe, and this is what I'm going to stand on. We need more people today who have the courage that when they're facing things that are coming against them and when they might be in an uncomfortable environment, they'll say, oh, no, it doesn't matter what people say or do. It doesn't matter what's going on around me. I have planted my feet firmly based on the Word of God and who He's called me to be, and I'm going to place my faith in Him. So they, they made a public declaration. It's important. I think sometimes when I talk to young people, teenagers in school, I say, you know, you don't, you don't go around about bragging on being a Christian, but you're not ashamed of being one either. But the best thing you can do in school is, in a non-religious sort of way, take a stand. Let others know that you're a follower of Christ. And then there's responsibility to do your best with his help to live that testimony out. Take a stand. If you don't take a stand, you have a tendency to be wishy-washy. So they took a public stand, made a public declaration now, they took the stand because they had a relationship with God. It says, our God, our God. So we will not bow to any other God because our God will deliver us. They knew that he would deliver them. They just didn't know what way or in which, which particular manner that they would, in which they would be delivered. But they knew deliverance was there. They made a public declaration. Secondly, they were tested. They were tested. Hey, as a believer, you're going to face some testings. 
They stood their ground. And by the way, love produces obedience. True love produces, true love of God produces obedience. That's where you have convictions. That's where there's absolute rights and wrongs. You stand your ground. They endured. They had a chance. They had a way out. Uh, just look. I'm going to give you one more chance. Bow down this time. But it says they endured, and they endured through the fiery furnace. God did not keep them out of it. He was with them in it and delivered them from it. Sometimes that's the way he works. Sometimes he will deliver you out of it. Sometimes he'll deliver you in and through it. Sometimes he'll deliver you and you don't even have to face it. Nevertheless, he delivers you. It's a promise. They endured and they finally they were delivered. They were supernaturally delivered without even the smell of smoke on them. And I love the very last part there, verse, it says, and the king promoted them. Don't leave that part out. Man, you walk in faith, unshakable faith, and you see it through in the spirit of Christ, and you go, you walk that all the way through the end, God's not only going to deliver you, he's going to promote you. He's going to breathe things into your life that are greater than you've ever experienced. He's going to give you more opportunities than you've ever had. He's going to put you in a greater position of influence than you've ever been. He's going to, I think, give you greater joy and fulfillment than you've ever had. It's important. Stand your ground. Endure all the way. God's going to bring you through it. Don't begin to get the persecution complex. Feel sorry for yourself. And know that God's going to deliver you, and then he'll promote you. He'll promote you. I'm going to do now, I'm going to bring things down to an end here by by looking at, uh, I think, three keys that will set us up or establish us, get us in a place to where we can develop unshakable faith. Three keys. First of all, first of all, it's important that you be certain of God's unsearchable love for you. If you're going to have unshakable faith, you need to have a certainty and assurance that God loves you. Many people, the problem that many people have in having a, a close relationship with the Lord and even in having a successful prayer life or in walking in consistent faith, continual faith, the problem they have is that they're not really confident of God's love. The, the enemy doesn't number on them and they think about their past failures and promises they made that they didn't keep. And the devil just kind of rubs their nose in the dirt, if you will, and they just say, you know, I, I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't see how God could still love me. You don't have to see how he could still love you. He loves you. People have been brought up in, in a home where they didn't experience true love from the dad or from their mom, from their parents. They didn't even realize their whole life they'd been really looking for what it meant to actually be loved. They didn't even know how to how to process that, what it would be like they experienced it. And those people have a very difficult time in, in walking in a, in a place of 
of confidence and joy in a relationship with the Lord. They have a difficult time because they're always doubting as to whether God really loves them or not. And if they mess up and do wrong, they think that God doesn't love them anymore. So if you're going to establish unshakable faith, you need to, you need to develop a certainty and assurance of God's unsearchable love for you. Now, love today is a, a word that's thrown around. You know, it's been Valentine's Day, so it's been thrown around and used in a lot of different ways today. It's been cheapened. It's being abused and misused. It's been used in place of what was lust. You know, it just, it just has, has been so abused in our, in our nation in particular today. Um, always remember that I think in true love, you'll experience some wonderful feelings, but love, love is not based on feelings. Love is based on choices. Feelings will come, but you make a choice. You make a decision. You make a commitment to love. I've talked with couples before, even, even in situations where there was a, a woman, a wife that had been abused, and it was not just one time, but it happened over a period of months and years. But her husband come back and apologize and say it's going to be different now. It never happens again. But what happened? He'll repeat over and over again. She finally got to that, that person, that wife will normally get the feeling that she deserves the punishment she's getting, that she's unworthy. She, does, she's, she tells herself that and I, I, it's, it's hard when you've got a person like that and they say, but I love him and he loves me. You know, I can't get into their mind or in their heart, but let me tell you something. A man that abuses and beats his wife does not love her. Does not love, I don't care what he says, does not love her. I'm not saying there weren't ever any feelings or don't still have feelings. So it's important for us to see that we must understand and know that God truly loves us and accepts us. You can't go with very much confidence on the road ahead. You can't face things ahead if you don't have confidence that God loves you, that God will meet your needs that he's on your side and you're going to be on his side, certainly. Uh, it's horrible what we see happening, even in our families. I had one man, this couple was getting married, and uh, this man decided to send them a wedding gift. And the wedding gift that he sent them was, was a uh, box of paper plates. And he said that he figured that they would last as long as their marriage would. And uh, sad to say... We're seeing that plight in, in homes today where there's no expression of true love. There are several words in the Greek for love that we have the word love translated in Scripture, but it's a different Greek word. Three main ones is the word eros, which is where we get erotic-type love. Then the phileo or philio, philia, which is affectionate, brotherly love. And then agape, which is that selfless love, the God kind of love. The Scripture says that God is love. And get this, his holiness is an expression of that love. Some people put love over here and holiness and righteousness over here. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. His love is perfect and holy. It's an expression 
of holiness. It cannot be separated. Unconditional love doesn't mean that God likes or approves of everything that we do. We don't have to be perfect to be loved. Let me say that again. You don't have to. I don't have to be perfect to be loved. How many of you grab? How many are you happy about that? You don't have to be perfect to be loved. Romans 5, verse 8, the Bible says that God commended or demonstrated or showed or proved his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, very imperfect, Christ died for us. 1 John 3, verse 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Amplified Bible says, See what an incredible quality of love that the Father has shown to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. You need to know this morning, I don't care... How many times you failed, I don't care what people have said to you. I, it doesn't matter. I want you to get it down deep inside of you that God loves you. We don't deserve it, but he loves you. John 3, 16. Everybody could quote it here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John 3, 16 says we know that we we know what really love what real love is like when we look at Jesus who gave his life for us so we also ought to give our lives for our brothers and sisters if we had time this morning we would walk through several verses of Romans chapter 8 we don't but sometimes it just do you good to sit down and read Romans 8 every day Romans 8 Verse 31, 32, and verse 35 says, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Or won't he also with that freely give us all things? Isn't that amazing? Message Bible says, So what do you think? With God on your side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly do for us? Verse 35, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death. We need to know that nothing, none of these things can separate you from the love of God. He loves you. Karl Barth was one of the great theologians. He was, brilliant, was a brilliant man. He was asked a question one time, said, uh, Professor, what do you believe is the most significant theological truth. What do you believe is the most significant theological truth? And I'll, he's been gone for a long time, but I'll never forget the statement that he made. He said, the greatest truth that I have ever known is this. And he smiled and he said, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. If you're going to establish an unshakable faith, you need to establish an unshakable certainty that God loves you. Now, his love, his loving us, should bring about a response from us. We love him because he first loved us. 
Jesus said, how could you love me and not keep my word? In other words, if we experience that love, he's going to change us, right? He's going to change us. But don't ever doubt. You don't have to be perfect to be loved. The second thing is we need to be confident of God's unlimited power. If you're going to have an unshakable faith, you need to establish a strong confidence that he is all-powerful. He's the creator. He spoke the worlds into existence. The Bible says that his word is powerful and alive. We see in the scripture the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work in you and me today. You need to know with confidence your faith does not have to be shaken because you have a God who has unlimited power. As strange as it may seem, the only thing that can, I'm going to say, use the word restrict. He's all powerful. He can do anything he wants to. But he never does anything contrary to the word. He never does anything contrary to his character. If you don't put that in there, then you get really misled on some things. God can do anything except he will never violate himself. He will never do anything contrary to his word or contrary to his nature. He can't. Won't happen. That's important for us to know. It's because in that way, since we're created as free moral agents, we, have a, we, we are given the ability to choose to follow him, to reject him, to say yes, to say no, to respond in faith or to waver in doubt. We're given those opportunities to choose there. I know this sounds a little bit unusual to folks, but God has unlimited power except people can limit God. People can limit an almighty God. In Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, he would have healed them all, but he couldn't do but just a few because of their unbelief. The people limited what his will was in that situation. Amazing. The Bible's filled with examples. God says, I will if you will. I will if you will. It's a flip side of that is true, is I won't if you don't. Doesn't that make sense to you? We get this idea that God is sovereign and all-powerful and just, you know, and he is. He is. But he's created us in a sense, in his, Im- in his image. He created us with a purpose to establish kingdom even here on earth within ourselves and then, of course, with him eternally. And so with man has been given the awesome ability and power to make choices that affect God's response. It doesn't make God any weaker. It just means God says, this is the way I'm going to work. Ask and you'll receive. If you waver in unbelief, don't think that you'll receive anything from God. It's pretty evident, isn't it, when you walk through the Scripture? Yes, we have have an unlimited God, so don't tax that. Don't try to limit that or tax that with any of your unbelief or your doubt or your fear or anything else, right? We want to say, God, you're all-powerful, so I want your power, I want your might to work in my life in everything. God has unlimited power, so God is always big enough for anything you face. I don't care what kind of prayer need. I don't care what kind of sickness. I don't care what you've been through. I don't care what you're going through right now. It doesn't matter. Get it down deep inside of you. 
you can be certain that he loves you and you can be completely confident that he's got power to take care of any situation you're going through right now. Get that inside of you. When something comes against you, say these things. Get a hold of the word. The final thing, the third thing is you need to be convinced in your heart, convinced of God's unending faithfulness. The Bible says he's faithful to keep even to the thousand generations. He's ever faithful. His mercy endures forever. Romans chapter 8 again, Romans chapter 8 verse 39 says, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither fears for today or for worries about tomorrow, nor even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. For I am convinced, Amplified Bible, I'm convinced and continue to be convinced beyond any doubt that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, threatenings, nor things to come, nor powers, verse 39, or height, or depth, nor any other created things will be able to separate us from the unlimited love of God, which is Christ Jesus. So his love is certain, his power is unlimited. Romans 8 27 says, No, no, despite all these things, our overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus. And we're convinced that he's going to see us through. He's faithful. The, the three Hebrew children, as they were referred to, they were convinced that God was a faithful God. They didn't know exactly how things would transpire, but they had faith. They believed in a faithful God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, the Bible says, but the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. Say that out loud with me. The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. The Lord is faithful. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold fast or seize and hold tightly the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So there's our part. Hold fast. Hold tightly to the confession of our hope, to the word that's given us. And do this without wavering, doubting back and forth. For God who has promised is faithful. The scripture says that, that even when we're not faithful, yet he remains faithful. God is faithful. Another thing to get down deep inside of you when you want to have unshakable faith is that God's going to see you through. You are an overcomer. The scripture says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, it says for everyone that's born of God, that's the new birth, that's a Christian, is victorious. And overcomes the world. Everyone. And this is the victory that has conquered, has conquered, and overcomes the world, even our faith in Christ Jesus as Lord. So we say, okay, how can I have an unshakable faith? I got to know that he loves me and don't, don't, 
don't, don't doubt that, whether it feels like it or not. He demonstrated. How could we ever doubt that he loves us? All you got to do is look at the cross. All you got to do is see how he's loved you over and over again. Don't doubt the fact that he has power enough to deal with any situation you're facing. No reason for you to be shaken about and in fear over it. No reason for you to wring your hands. No reason for you to give up. And the third thing is he's always faithful. He keeps his word. You can count on him. Now, that's just laying the groundwork because we're going to look at some interesting things about unshakable faith next week as we continue in this. But I pray that God will use these two or three weeks here to get us firmly established together as a body of believers because we've been called to live by faith and not by sight.